Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hello and welcome to Medicus. We have an awesome episode for you today titled Faith in Medicine and Bioethics. The idea for this episode comes from an elective program hosted by multiple Jesuit medical schools across the country called the Physician's Vocation Program, or PVP. PVP aims to cultivate a sense of calling, i.e. vocation, by integrating aspects of religious formation, prayer, self-reflection, community service, and education into the formation of student doctors. For me, I saw this program as an opportunity to learn how faith and medicine intersects within my own life and the lives of patients. Additionally, I find that this program highlights the importance of reflecting on spirituality being a significant component of one's overall health. Ultimately, the inspiration of this episode came from discussions held with other medical students in this program who expressed concern of not knowing what to do when a patient asks, why me, or why is XYZ deity or religion or God making me suffer in this way? Therefore, we have brought in Dr. Hart, a renowned bioethicist and the Loyola Stritch School of Medicine PPP program director to shed light into the world of bioethics, faith, and medicine. So the following themes that will be addressed in this interview include who is Dr. Hart and what does Dr. Hart do as a bioethicist? What is the right approach in caring for a patient whose faith and spirituality is a major component of their overall well-being? How should medical students, physicians, etc. respond to patients when they ask, why me, or why is XYZ deity or religion or God making me suffer? And then what are Dr. Hart's recommendations to those who seek to become good, moral, or ethical healthcare providers? So here is a quick bio of Dr. Hart. Dr. Hart, PhD, is the Vice President for the Mission Integration for Trinity Health Illinois and Associate Provost for Mission and Identity at Loyola University Chicago Health Sciences Division. In his capacity as Vice President, he is responsible for the implementation, growth, and assessment of Trinity Health's mission and ethics portfolio across the region. John received his doctorate in moral theology from Boston College and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Chicago's McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. As an associate professor, his work has concentrated on end-of-life care, physician conscious, and professional formation. He has testified before the President's Council on Bioethics Unconscious in the Clinical Encounter. He was awarded a two-year grant in 2012 from the University of Chicago's Program on Medicine and Religion, where he served as a faculty scholar. His grant research focused on Ignatian spirituality and formation of physicians and launched the PPP program, a four-year program for medical students at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine interested in exploring the concept of vocation in their own lives as future doctors. So Dr. Hart, welcome to Medicus. Alec, thank you. It's good to be with you. We've had so many good discussions, I think, in PVP. Agreed. Um, and it's just, it's so great. And I, I kind of wanted to, to bring some of those discussions here um, just to kind of enlighten everybody about what kind of we talk about, but also, you know, bioethics in general. Um, and so with that, would you tell us about your path in your career towards bioethics? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so it, uh, to, it was certainly an, an uncharted path uh, and an unplanned path. I, um, 
I, I became interested in theology as a high school student, which is not the most common story. I was at a Jesuit high school here in the Chicago area and had a couple wonderful teachers who opened kind of that question set for me, life's big questions of meaning and purpose. Who are we? Why are we here? If God is real, shouldn't that mean something in my life? Um, and as a high school kid, those questions took root in me. I worked um, very hard to avoid them. I went to Indiana University to study broadcast journalism. And about two weeks into arriving there, knew I'd made a very bad choice for college. Loved Indiana U, made wonderful friends there, had a great year, um, but transferred, knowing that um, it didn't feel like a good fit for me. I missed two things. Um, one was uh, unarticulated at the time, but it was a desire to study theology. And the other was wanting to be in a Jesuit school context. So I transferred to Marquette University and wound up very reluctantly uh, studying theology and psychology there. Again, not knowing what I would do with my life, how would I find a job, et cetera. Um, and then uh, through a, a series of other choices in my life, wound up um, in graduate school studying theology um, after a year of volunteer service after college. And um, was back doing a doctorate in theology and was looking, I was in, there are different tracks in the discipline of theology and I was doing systematic or philosophical theology at the time, studying the Trinity, looking at Trinitarian theology. And I remember going to a doctoral seminar with our faculty and um, one of our faculty members who was a mother uh, to five children, I believe, um, came in and threw a stack of job openings on the seminar table and she said, uh, I'm going to speak to all of you like I'm your mother. I don't know what any of you are doing. You all have to get jobs, and the world is not necessarily looking for <laughs> theologians. Every one of these job openings is in medical ethics, and none of you are working in that field. So some of you should start thinking about it because that's who needs to be hired right now. <laughs> and I was the one person, I think, who took her up on it. Wow. So I made an appointment with her, went and saw her, um, and uh, wound up changing tracks, took her as my supervisor and then ultimately my dissertation director, wound up writing uh, a dissertation in medical ethics that was actually on genetic enhancement of all things, hmm. um, and then found myself walking down this track of working in this field. Uh, so that's how I wound up initially moving in this direction. Wow. So definitely not, I feel like, straightforward. Far from <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but good. Um, so you have many roles and responsibilities in your in Loyola itself. A couple um, at least. Uh, at yeah. least a couple, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what is your what is your day-to-day like or, or week-to-week even like? Or does it vary? Yeah. It does vary, but there's some consistency and it's varying. So... I occupy this uh, mission role, as it's oftentimes described as, which is a common role in Catholic healthcare institutions. It's a role that was created as the number of men and women religious who uh, began these institutions and managed these institutions has diminished, right? So there's fewer priests and nuns out there. Mm -hmm. And the question became, in the absence of those people who were formed by the tradition, practiced the tradition, lived in the tradition, and then also ran these institutions, how are these institutions going to maintain a distinctive religious identity? And one of the responses to trying to answer that was to say, well, we should create an executive-level role that attends to that question. 
Um, and that's how I um, wound up in this kind of work. Also not chosen, but came to me by surprise. Um, and it's been a wonderful ride. So I, I occupy this mission role. And to your question, what does that job look like? I have a split role with our health system and our university. Our health system here, Loyola University Health System, is not owned by Loyola University Chicago. It's owned by Trinity Health. Mm. So um, I, I bridge the divide. My, uh, my paychecks come from Trinity Health, and then Loyola University Chicago buys back a percentage of my time that allows me to work in HSD and do things like PVP. Mm. Um, so I have these two different buckets, university and then health system. Mm-hmm. On the health system side, my formal responsibilities are oversight of our spiritual care chaplain team in the hospital, as well as all of our ethics functions. So our ethics consult service, our ethics committees, et cetera. And then in this role, you generally function as the liaison for the archdiocese. So it's my job to make sure that we maintain an open and trusting relationship with the Archdiocese of Chicago. On the university side, um, I have oversight of our HSD ministry team, um, and that's a a great joy as well. So I get to work with wonderful people on both sides of the equation, and then I function as a member of the executive team for those uh, two institutions. Lots. What are my meetings like, Alec? <laughs> or what are my days like? They're filled with meetings. That's what my days are like. Um, it, you go to a lot of meetings. You're involved mm-hmm. in a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. Everything from budget, strategy, um, development and advancement work, fundraising work, mm-hmm. um, to uh, more particular things like policy conversation, policy review, HR issues, mm-hmm. um, and then there is a whole panoply of work that um, I'm responsible to do to try to find ways to foster the mission of our institutions as Jesuit and Catholic. Mm-hmm. And PVP is an example of one thing that we do to try to say um, that we want to figure out how we can take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And that's more so on the side of Loyola Strict School of Medicine. You got it, versus, which is a you know. function of the health sciences division of mm-hmm. the university. Gotcha. Yeah, so it's specific to Stritch. Mm, okay. Yeah. Cool. What is your um? What's the like best part of your job? Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of great parts of my job. So I love these institutions. So the people are the best part of it. We get to work with really fine people mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. But if I were to pick the thing that I like most, um, it would probably be time spent with medical students. That's where most of my teaching happens. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do less and less of it as my administrative workload increases. Um, But I find that to be uh, the most refreshing and life-giving. I feel like that gives me energy to do other work that's very important. So I tend to try to be protective of that and make sure that I can keep at least a piece of it in my portfolio. We absolutely appreciate it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Um, the feelings mutual. Yeah. What is uh, what's the most difficult or challenging part of your job? And you know, I kind of say this, and I think it it might be obvious. Well, you're a bioethicist. Like, obviously, there's and there's uh, there's many things that that challenge Occasional you. Occasional right? hard cases yeah. and things like that. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt that you know, over the course of a year, you might leave with uh, you know two to five, a handful of cases that will have been heart-wrenching, you know, just because of the nature of our human lives is finite and the reality of illness and unexpected injury and um, the pain of loss as part of working in healthcare. So those things Mm -hmm. are part of it. But I would say that um, 
I think the hardest part, just for me as I observe us, is the economics of healthcare have become so challenging that um, I think that it's very difficult to live under the constant pressure of financial performance. And that becomes um, a pressure that shapes so much of our work and requires so much of our attention um, that it, it creates a very high stress environment. Healthcare is a very difficult industry, and yet it's a obviously profoundly important one and profoundly human one. Um, but the, the business models that are required to make it work are demanding. Um, and when I spend a lot of time in meetings with very gifted colleagues who have the skill set to make those decisions and think through them, my heart goes out to them mm-hmm. and my heart goes out to us because it is a very dominant paradigm in healthcare right now. What does vocation mean to you, I guess, in terms of a bioethicist? Um, and where, I guess, do you see that in your own job? Yeah. It's an interesting question. So how do I think about vocation as a bioethicist, and where do I see it living in my own job? Or life. Or life, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, if I say life, it gets easier for me. For this reason, I would say. Um, the, my, my personal experience as a person of faith has been one in which I would say that um, God calls and I run, uh, and not toward but away. Hmm. So um, my personal journey I would describe as a, oftentimes a reluctant one. But the older I get, the more I am aware of a God who uh, relentlessly desires me, seeks to be with me. Um, And I am getting better, I think, at accepting that. So I, in hindsight, Alec, I would say that um, I can see evidence of a call in my life, Mm -hmm. right? But if you asked me in the moment, did I feel especially called when I was studying theology as a graduate student or volunteering um, as a high school teacher or taking my first job as a faculty member in Stretch? No. Hmm. Those were steps on a path. They were um, the next thing in my life that I had to do. Um, But I remember... I remember writing the last chapter of my dissertation and being so discouraged with it that I was filling out applications to go work for a bank. So that, you know, I never had this sense of, oh, I am going to do this and I am called to do this. I was on the edge of saying, get me out of this. Let me do anything (laughs) other than this. It's looking backward Mm -hmm. that I have the sense in my life that um, there is evidence of God's grace all around Mm -hmm. me. And again, I think as I get older, I, I can go home more nights with a smile on my face saying, oh, what a good place and what good work. Mm-hmm. Um, and while the, you know, while the impact, I think, of most of our lives is relatively small, um, it's, it's a confined geography. To, to manage that well, to tend to that geography well, is a life well lived. And... Um, I've been given every opportunity to live a beautiful life, uh, and I have to keep working hard to appreciate that and to act on it. Because um, the opportunity to work with students like you, 
physicians, nurses, social workers, lawyers, business people, who for a whole range of reasons have said, this is a place where I want to expend my talent and energy in the service of caring for people in moments of illness. Um, that's a really good thing. Hmm. Uh, so I, in that way, I can look back and say, oh, yeah, I've been called to this. Mm -hmm. I may have resisted the call from time to time, mm -hmm. but I've been called to it. And that's a and that's that's reassuring to hear because I think, um, you know, when you're on the interview trail for medical school, at least, I think you know sometimes like one of the common questions is, okay, so why are you going into medicine? Or like maybe they even would ask like, do you feel a call to medicine or in how so? And I think that's like a really tough question to answer like right on and spot on the moment. I mean, you obviously did a great job, but but like I feel like it's it's hard to articulate unless you did have a very wow, powerful yeah. moment. And it is nice to hear how you can still feel that calling towards doing something good if you reflect on it. So yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have to happen to you, or you can't you don't have to wait for it. You might it might have already happened. You just have to reflect on that and I think that at least what I'm hearing from you is that really pushes you forward in your own job yes I think that's absolutely right and you are spot on there are people who and we know some of them right who said no I knew at the age of six that I was going to be a doctor <laughs> or I was going to be x um, mm -hmm. there are people who have a real articulated defined sense of calling in their life mm -hmm. I'm just not one of them um, and I think that that it's shaped by so many things, right? Personality type and experiences as a young person, sure. mentors in your life, all those things can really shape uh, how one has that sense or doesn't have that sense. I don't want to act as though that isn't a legitimate experience. It's just not mine. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's true for so many of us. I remember in college I would pray a prayer by um, Cardinal John Henry Newman um, it's really a psalm, I think, or a, a hymn, I should say, called Lead Kindly Light, um, which is essentially a prayer to say, Lord, there's darkness all around me. I'm, I'm walking in the midst of fog and mist, and I can't see a thing. Could you just give me enough light, kindly light, to take the next step? I just need to see where my foot's going to go down next. I can't see a mile ahead. I can't even see 10 feet ahead. But can I have enough light to see where I should put my foot down? Mm -hmm. And I... I have the sense that I have lived a lot of my life in that prayer. Um, and it's, it's been wonderful. Uh, the path wasn't visible to me, but it is in hindsight that I can look back and see where I started and where I've walked. And I, there's a lot of evidence that it's been good so far. That's great. Well, thank you. Um, and I think I'd now like to transition into the idea of um, caring for a patient whose faith and spirituality is important. Um, and I think this is something that, you know, we don't really get great education on. Um, and it's almost, uh, you know, part of the social history, I guess, for us. Yeah. Like, oh, like, do you, is spirituality important in your life? And yeah. yes or no, are you Catholic? And then, you know, on the EMR, it says this person is like Catholic, but yeah. like you don't really do anything with that or, yeah. you know. I'm, I'm curious because you've obviously been in the hospital system and you work in the hospital system. How have you seen patients with strong faith and spiritual backgrounds view their ailments? And is that different than those who may not have a significant spiritual draw? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think my answer to that would be that my experience has been that people are profoundly individual. 
in this regard, right? I don't see a template or a pattern for people of faith experiencing illness versus people who don't uh, present as having um, faith in their life in a way where I could say kind of category A, category B. I think that people of faith, um, depending on, again, who they are, what they're facing, the nature of their illness, their family context, um, their understanding of their mortality, can face death with a fair amount of equanimity and peace, and others who face it with real fear and dread. Um, and I think that can go for people uh, who believe in the transcendent as well as people who do not. So I, in my experience, have not seen much that I could generalize from there. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting that you would ask the question because I, there is evidence of both in the Christian tradition, right? I mean, um, we certainly have the sense in the Christian tradition that we are destined for eternity that we are a pilgrim people, that this journey is not our final one. Um, so we have a sense in which our faith attempts to form and train us in our mortality, our finitude, right? But that doesn't mean that death doesn't necessarily present as horrible or hard or, or, or reason for fear. You can think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, that is not a narrative of a person peacefully approaching his death. Um, it's a person begging God to let this cup pass before him, right? Um, there is this interesting strand in, in the Western philosophical tradition that um, compares the death of Socrates um, in his, his uh, willing drinking of the hemlock, uh, taking of the poison in his, you know, discourse on his own dying before he does it compared to that of Jesus um, and, and the garden scene. Socrates approaches death with this tremendous peace. Jesus does not. Um, what do we make of that? You know, I think that uh, what I make of it is that um, it's very possible for me to believe in eternity and pray and hope for heaven uh, and have real fear uh, and anxiety about my own dying, hmm. which is, I would say, exactly what I would say about myself right now, that I have that hope. But I spend a fair amount of time uh, trying to reconcile uh, within my own mind and heart my own finitude. Mm -hmm. um, and I play that out uh, many, many times. You know, when, how, what it would mean for my children, my family, what will the mark of my life have been? How will I have lived or not lived as a Christian? Mm -hmm. um, so those are all things that play in my imagination, no doubt. Mm. Do you think that a physician should approach a patient differently that has, that has shown um, that spirituality, faith, what have you, is important in their lives? And yeah. what does that look like? So I think my... My first level reaction to that question is to say no, because I want every physician to approach every patient with the desire to know them. So to your earlier point, you know, when we, when we categorize faith as um, 
something like, um, are you a smoker? Do you have a habit of exercise? Do you go to church or believe in God? It becomes this little piece of a social history. And that's not to diminish a habit of exercise or a habit of smoking. It's to say that it seems to me that the question of faith, whether one is a believer or not, um, is a question about, at a very fundamental level, how do you understand yourself and your place in the world? It's a, it's, it's a way of asking, tell me your story. Who are you? Uh, I know you're coming to me because you know, you're having flank pain or because you were diagnosed with this breast tumor, whatever it might be. But um, I have the sense that a, that a good doctor wants to know the story of that body that he or she is going to be caring for, examining, operating on. Um, because that is, there is no, from, from I think a Christian vantage point, there is no separation of the spiritual self um, from the biological self. To do, to do right by the biology, it seems to me that you would want to do right by the whole story. And the question of faith and however one answers it in, in either case um, is going gonna, is, is gonna to tell you a lot about a person's sense of meaning, purpose, identity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And that's actually, I was almost going to follow up that question with um, the idea of cura personalis. And yeah. um, for those who may not have uh, been ingrained in a Jesuit institution, cura personalis is one of the common mantras of, uh, I guess, Jesuit ideology themes, tutelage. Um, And it's all about caring for the whole person. Uh, And I think um, the, you know, obviously you have mind, body, spirit uh, involved in that. And uh, that's why I always wondered, do you only care for the mind and body then with those who don't exemplify the spiritual side um, or come out telling you going to church is very important to me or um you know this religion is very important to me or practice is important to me um do we ignore that or uh do we try and investigate it further yeah so i i I think i would want to counsel you as a medical student to say if a patient shares something with you you probably want to think about it as being important um so how, how would you follow up on that? If a patient says, uh, Doc, I know that I'm here with this cancer diagnosis. I want you to know that you know, I'm a deeply committed uh, person of faith. I come from the Christian tradition. I, uh, I go to church every Sunday. I attend a Bible study Wednesday evenings. Mm-hmm. And my faith is going to get me through this. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that person has told you a lot about mm-hmm. themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's an invitation uh, to start with some open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. When you say that your faith is going to get you through this, I want to hear what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, how can I help support you in this, mm-hmm. through this journey? Um, I'm so grateful to know that you're going to have um, a community of people, it sounds like, who are going to care for you and be praying for you. Um, I'm going to do my best to care for you. Um, but it's as important, if not more important, for a person facing this kind of diagnosis to have the support network you've just described to me, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's one kind of approach. If you're a physician of faith 
it's an opportunity, if you mean it, I'm big on being authentic, to say, I'm glad to know that about you. I'm a believer too, and I'm going to pray for you. I pray for all my patients, if that's true, right? Mm -hmm. To me, once a person has shared that, they've opened the door for that kind of conversation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If a person shares with you that they're um, a committed non-believer, I would highly discourage you saying, well, I really am going to pray for you. It may be true that you'd pray for that patient, but that's not an interaction, a conversation, a point of connectivity that the patient has invited a physician into, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, perhaps they've signaled the opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that there aren't important questions to ask. What do you care about? What are the most important things in your life? What are you excited by and what do you fear going forward? How can I be of support to you? All of those same questions matter. It's just going to be answered, I would imagine, in a different context. So so much of being a good physician is being a good listener because to see your patients, you have to hear them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so patients will oftentimes tell us a lot about who they are. And if you're inquisitive, which I think is another way of saying if you love your patients, you'll be inclined to want to learn more about mm-hmm. them. And I think that's uh, a great way to start off with helping us kind of try to answer this question, like why me and um, and the difficulties that come with that. And yeah. what I've heard from you is that there is sort of like a two-pronged approach. You have on one hand, I think all providers should be asking open-ended questions after the fact of well, what does this mean for you? How are you feeling in this moment? Um how can I make you more comfortable? You know, those kind of open-ended yeah. questions, yeah. like you were saying, um, after they've shared something very personal or um, or tell me more about this. Um, and then if they have shared something that connects you to, i.e. a faith tradition or something, um, your recommendation is that you can potentially explore that connection and um, maybe that can benefit that patient's um well-being so i think that's a that that was a really good point and i think that also transitions into the question of the day i guess is when a patient asks you know they hit rock bottom yeah something's everything's going wrong and they look at you and they say why me or why is this happening to me why is you know this person or deity or whatever they practice making me suffer and I guess first, I'm curious as how you think we respond mm. and then how we should respond. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> um, so as you know, Alec, it's a huge question, right? It's, it's commonly described as the, at least in the Christian tradition, the question of theodicy. How does one reconcile a loving and powerful God with the reality of unexpected illness, um, impending death, horrific injury, whatever it might be in the context of healthcare, that can elicit in any of us that question of why me, right? How could God do this to me or how could God do this to my loved one? Um, Those are questions that are asked frequently in hospitals. and I've heard them, you know, more than once uh, doing ethics consultation work in the hospitals and being around patients and families. 
I'm reluctant to talk about how we should respond because um, I don't know that there's a right and a wrong to our response to those questions um, or, or response to those realities in our life. But I think that what I would say is that we do have some guidance as to ways to respond. Um, one response, uh, and I think it has its own validity, is to ask that as an intellectual question. How does one reconcile a loving and just God with the reality of something like um, devastating illness? And one can make serious philosophical, theological arguments as to how that can be, right? Oftentimes it touches on issues of free will, God's intention in creation, how we understand what creation is, how we understand the nature of sin in the Christian tradition. And you'll notice I'm answering a lot of this from the Christian tradition because it's the tradition I know. Um, I, I, I'm really reluctant to speak beyond, uh, although some of this I anticipate certainly applies in Judaism and as well as Islam, but I, I cannot speak for those traditions. So that's one response. It's an academic response. It's a logical response. It's an attempt to make a coherent argument. The follow-up question is, how does that help the person in the moment, right? Um, and here I rely on a theologian named John Swinton for, I think, giving a really great answer. Uh, he's a Scottish theologian, teaches at the University of Aberdeen. He's also a psychiatric nurse, and he's written a beautiful book on this topic. And Swinton calls our attention to the fact that there actually um, are other ways for Christians to think about this question and to respond to this question, and that the way we typically do, which is to go towards kind of an argument, a theological argument, um, as well as our desire to even frame the question as we do, meaning how could this happen to me, is almost brand new in human history. Our predecessors um, understood um, the reality of death and human suffering is kind of woven into their lives in such a normal and integrated way that when bad things happened, they didn't say, how could this happen to me? Because it was just anticipated that a lot of bad things would happen. Um, it was a culture that was more, um, more closely in communication with suffering and death. Because of developments, many of them profoundly wonderful uh, in our world, um, and because of a, a shift in our, uh, our cultural philosophy towards a desire um, to master death and to hold back suffering and pain at all costs, um, we have become, many of us, it's not true of the globe for sure, but those of us, many of us in the developed Western world with resources live lives that are in large part free of that kind of suffering. And when it hits us, we're shocked by it, and our response is to ask that question. What Swinton calls us to is a couple different things. One is to say, very foundationally, do we, can we ask anything about what God does in these moments? And he says, well, you can. And the obvious answer is, God sends Jesus. It becomes a God who responds to the world's suffering by joining it, right? That is what the incarnation is about in enjoying the suffering and in moving through that suffering as perfect love, 
it ultimately redeems and conquers that suffering, such that the effects, death, are still a reality of our lives, but they don't hold us in eternity. Death is broken in that way. Instead of it being final, it becomes a passageway, a difficult one oftentimes to pass through, but a passageway into eternity. So the first response is to say, well, it's not, maybe it's not so much about answering this question, why me? But saying, what did God do when the world suffered? Well, he joined it. He accompanied it. And could it be that if we're called to be like Christ, one of our responses is to accompany people who suffer, to join them in it, to be with them. It is an act of presence. And I think that medicine looks past that too quickly mm. because we're in the fixing business, right? Mm. We're in the business of once again removing suffering from people's lives. And I don't want to say that that's not a good thing. I think it is. But it can be at the cost of our accompanying them. And then the last thing I'd say on this is that another wonderful thing I think Swinton does in that book is he calls our attention to the Psalms of Lament. And he says, you know, you, you have an entire section of, of the Bible that's dedicated to prayers of people crying out to God, Lord, why me? Where are you in this? Why have you abandoned me? And he says, notice that we are allowed to experience and express that frustration, that rage, that anguish, that loneliness, that despair with God. But we do it in the context of prayer. This is a God who can hear that from us. And those psalms of lament resolve, they come to a conclusion with a restoration of faith and hope. So it's a way of saying the Christian story is one that can accommodate fear, loneliness, a sense of abandonment, a feeling that one's world is collapsing in upon them with a, with a diagnosis, for example. The Christian tradition knows that experience and even has a way to place that experience within the context of prayer. And what we're called to is to join people in the experience, accompany them through it, and in being with them through practices of prayer, in friendship and hospitality, right? Hospital shares the root of hospitality. Um, we have a way of conquering or holding back the evil that those people are experiencing in that loneliness, that frustration, that feeling of abandonment. Hmm. That was a long answer. Is that helpful? No, it absolutely is. And I okay. think that that actually kind of ended on a perfect transition into recommendations on people on, on how people can, well, not people, but healthcare providers can become good, moral, ethical, the like. Um, and it sounds like in their time of need, obviously, we must be present in some capacity. And I say some capacity because I think Evermore is the, um, the physician's day shrinking in terms of interacting with their patients uh you know you only you have that 15 minutes to really yeah. to really get to know someone and or check up on someone especially if it's a you know a, a checkup um or a follow-up yeah um and that may be the most important time especially if they're going through something i.e they've just been diagnosed with cancer um although you'd hope that you'd maybe if you're breaking the news to them that you'd be able to spend at least a little bit more time yes. um but that might not be the case in other institutions. 
or they are internally struggling with something uh, and they've wanted to tell you or they've wanted to tell someone about it, um, but it's just it's kind of on their tip of their tongue or, or they've buried it down so much that you really need to pry for it. And sometimes in the patient encounter, we don't have that time. Um, and, you know, you know, as a medical student, I'm still trying to even develop my interview skills. Sure, so um, it's still tough to, to really tease that out. And I, I feel like, you know, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, what, what characteristics make a good moral or ethical physician, nurse, uh, healthcare provider, um, but yeah. I'm I'm not sure if if that's uh, to to answer my own question. I I, I feel like it's uh, it it just takes practice. But I'm I'm curious to what you think. I like your answer. I think it does take practice because I think what you're asking me is a question about um, really what are the virtues, right? What are the habits and behaviors yeah. of our lives that could make us good physicians? And I would say that it's virtually identical to what would make you a good person. So quite honestly, I worry less about making good doctors than I do trying to form good people. Um, because those kinds of virtues will not stay within the boundaries of your life as a doctor, but they'll be who you are as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a sister, as a son. Um, as a colleague, as a friend, right? Pick, pick the category. Those habits will be constitutive of who you are. That's the nature of virtue. That what at first has to be practiced and almost forced slowly becomes ingrained in part of who you are. So, um, you know, the Christian tradition offers us a beautiful set of virtues. Um, and those are certainly worth, I think, fostering. And then um, the other ones that I think show up specifically within medicine as a profession are all derivative of things like faith, hope, and charity. Um, compassion, right? The capacity, the, the root of that is really uh, describes the capacity to suffer with I think one of the failures of medical education broadly is that we too often warn you about maintaining professional distance, which I think is oftentimes heard as a way of saying, don't get to know your patients too closely or the, their pain will become your pain. And I, I wanna say, yes, that's exactly what needs to happen because that means their joy will become your joy. Again, I don't know what the point of going into a profession like this is if you don't want to draw close to the experience of the people you're caring for. Um, and there is something asynchronous about your capacity to look at them naked, open their abdomen, explore their bodies, and then not feel as though you should know them as human beings. It, it creates a, a painful distance, I think, between an intimacy with their human anatomy and then we're going to suggest that you should remain distant from them as people to maintain professional distance I don't think that I think that that creates an, an unhealthy bifurcation in a physician's life mm -hmm. so to me um, to, to counsel compassion is a virtue of physicians 
is, is another way of saying this is, this is the way to be a joyful physician. Because to know a person's pain is also to know their, their loves um, and their joys and the things that give them life and the things that they're grieving, perhaps, as their functionality declines or as they approach death. Um, all of that is another way of saying you would know them well. Mm-hmm. So listening mm-hmm. is a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the studies that are so often cited about how quickly doctors interrupt patients when they're giving histories, it's a matter of seconds yeah. before a doctor... It's like 11 seconds or something. Yeah, interrupts know. a patient yeah. history. So um, listening is hard. That would be near the top of my list. Mm-hmm. I'm presuming in all of this, competence, right? So much of what we're trying to give you in medical school is clinical competence. So we... We want to make you expert technicians. We want you to understand the human body, the mechanisms and functions of the body, disease uh, systems. Um, all of those things that you're trained in are absolutely necessary and important. So I'm presuming that. And then all the other stuff, I think, is what makes you a good doctor, not just a good technician. Mm. But I would place compassion and listening really, really close to the top. Mm. I think if you find doctors who do those two things, they tend to be good doctors. Mm-hmm. What would you specifically suggest to someone who wishes to develop or to continue to develop their their capacity to be compassionate? What does compassion look like? I guess yeah. in the patient encounter. Yeah. Um, you know, I I mean, I've been a patient before. You've been a patient before. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I I know when the doctor walks into the room or the PA walks into the room nurse walks into the room, I can tell, like, I think I'm going to like this person. Yeah. And I don't know. And it's almost immediate, mm. like, within probably the first minute, yeah. you know. And I don't know if it's maybe just body language or, you know, you've had that third cup of coffee and you're feeling really good yeah. and you step in ready to go and see your patient. So I don't know if it's just put a smile on your face and, like, go in, like, fake yeah. it to your make it. Yeah. But, you know... Like, I hate using that phrase because you want to be genuine in all this. And I feel like that's what elicits the the true connection and, like, the true support for a patient um, or can benefit the patient the most. Uh, so I guess is there something specific that I guess you would recommend to those providers to do or yeah. mistakes you've seen maybe in your uh, tenure here as a bioethicist? Yeah. Et- ethicist? That's a great question. So at a very foundational level, the first thing I'd say is kindness goes a long way. And kindness shows up almost when a person walks into a room, right? But an important variant there is attentiveness. Does a doctor walk in and not make eye contact with you? Does a nurse come in looking frustrated and in a hurry uh, uh, in in a pre-visit while uh, he or she's taking vitals and getting your weight? Um, simple things, right? It's, it's almost the most foundational of basic human behaviors. Mm-hmm. Look a person in the eye. Introduce yourself. Shake their hand. Say, it's so nice to be with you today or it's so nice to see you. How can I help you? Those, those kind of simple things are a way of making yourself available and present to the person in front of you, Right? Um, It's a way of initiating and expressing interest in who they are as people and why they're in your clinic. Um, So you can't go wrong with beginning with the most basic things. 
But what I would honestly counsel you as a medical student and all of your classmates and all of our nursing students is to find your mentors and watch them closely. Because the, you know, this, is, this comes from the Greeks, but the notion that we actually become moral human beings by being around moral human beings, <laughs> um, that is the fake it till you make it. Watch mm-hmm. it. Try to imitate it. And it will become what you do. The problem is that you watch a lot of things. You don't realize you're imitating it, and you become what they did. We have a lot of bad mentorship in the professions. And what we need to call out and really concentrate on is the good mentorship. So I even say this to our resident physicians at their orientation, that the most important thing they can do as residents while they're with us is to pick one or two mentors. and to not just pick it based on clinical expertise or technical expertise, but to pick it based on human expertise. Who are the people, who are the attending physicians, who are the nurses who walk into a room and you see the encounter and you go, oh, that was beautiful. Uh Find them, talk to them, ask them how they became that way, ask them the kinds of things they say, Ask them what habits they have in their own life that allow them to be those kinds of people and imitate them. Mm-hmm. The last thing I would say is to pray. And I say that quite seriously to people of faith. Um, for those of us who believe, uh, ask God to make you that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And um, do that consistently and with great intentionality. Wonderful. And I think I'd like to end with just one more question. When you have someone that is completely different from you and do you see that you're sitting across from them and you're not seeing eye to eye, your faith traditions don't even line up together. Does that just um, elicit you falling back on those natural, you know, innate qualities of being a good person, i.e. being kind, being compassionate, listening? Um, Or is there something else that we can do as healthcare providers to make someone feel more comfortable? Yeah, it's a good question. So again, I would would say that I think the the best clinicians I know really love people. And meeting someone who's very, very different from them is not a source of concern or reason for retreat, but one of, tell me about you. You're not like me, right? Mm-hmm. There, you know, as, as you mentioned at the start, here we are sitting in the lower level of a Jesuit medical school. Um, it is an Ignatian, a Jesuit principle that God is to be found in the other. If you want to know where God is, meet the person who's not like you. Find the experience that isn't yours, and that's where you're going to find God. Um, Ignatius believed that at a very fundamental level, and it shows up in interesting ways throughout his spirituality. But the notion that God is to be found in all places and in all things tells us right away that God is going to be found outside of our native experience because we are not all places and all things right? You are Alec and I am John. And you and I are really different from one another. 
And if we come to know one another, we're going to have an encounter with God because we hold to the idea that we're made in God's image as Christians. So from a standpoint of faith, that would be my initial instinct. Um, it's good to be curious, right? I mean, there is a way in which you are all scientists of one kind or another. You have a desire to understand the world. When you meet the person who isn't anything like you, discover them. Ask them who they are. Find out what their story is. And I suspect that in that process, you're going to find points of connectivity that you may not have ever anticipated being there. Thank you so much. I think I, I mean, I don't think I know that I've learned a lot from just listening to you um, kind of speak about, about these tough topics and they are tough. I feel like it, again, it does take practice to kind of really, and, and really be there, you know, in the clinics and in the hospital setting, uh, setting and, and that's where you do your learning. Right. And um, especially at least I'm talking in stereotypical medical education where you do your two years in the books and then two years um, on rounds. Yes. Um, it is a short time really to develop those skills. And then all of a sudden you're an MD and you have to be empathetic. You have to, you know, be compassionate. You have to stay up till, you know, four o'clock in the morning um, and make sure, you know, that good person shines through the entire time. Um, so yeah, so I would be, you know, I'd be kidding myself if I wasn't like anxious about, you know, how that will look like in the next couple of years for me or for my classmates or, you know, for, for all the other professionals out there um, yeah. in training. Uh, but I think like we kind of said, the reflection, um, really does wonders and, you know, just thinking about it, I think that will, that will really carry at least me forward and, and hopefully our listeners too. So um, I'd like to end by thanking you again for coming on and uh, taking the time out of your busy day uh, to be with us. Alex, so it's been a great pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so for much. the invitation. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without the support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com, where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine. No patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.